do typology in two steps instead of one. Don't do a leap. That's one step, right? The wood of the tabernacle to the, the wood of the cross. Mm -hmm. Don't do it one step. Do it two steps. The first step, what is God saying to them back then? And the second step, how is that fulfilled in Christ? And sometimes right. also in his people. And sometimes also in the second coming, right? Which is still Christ. <laughs> Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or find the link in our show notes to be added to our list. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. This is Nick Fulweiler. I got Peter Bell here and our special guest, Dr. Vern Polythris. And we're going to be talking about typology today. Um, just as a reminder about season two, what we're doing is we're having guests, guests come on the show that have extensive, impressive backgrounds on theology, uh, authorship, their pastors. Um, what have you, and we are going to just ask them some questions based on this topic and have fun with it. Um, so I'll let Peter go ahead and uh, introduce our guest today. Yeah, we're super excited to have Dr. Vern Poitras on the podcast. He's the Distinguished Professor of New Testament, Biblical Interpretation, and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, where he's been teaching for a little over 40 years. He's got a, a bunch of books out on typology, on hermeneutics, and so we are excited and, and humbled to speak to him about Christ in the Old Testament and, and how to read how Christ is fulfilled and is typed in the Old Testament. So thank you for coming on, Dr. Poitras. Yes, thank you for inviting me. So doctor, I'm just gonna ask a handful of questions and you know, just in conversation, just uh, feel free to elaborate as much as you want or as condensed as you want. Um, the first question, based on typology, uh, can you briefly describe what typology is and its importance for reading our Bible in a Christ-centered way? Typology is a study of types. But of course, that just pushes it back, doesn't <laughs> it? What is a type? Well, the word type actually occurs in the New Testament. Uh, one place is Romans 5, 14, where it says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And the one who was to come is Christ. But what does that mean? There are a few other occurrences of that word in the New Testament. But if you just confine yourself to the handful you've missed an awful lot because there can be types that aren't named with that specific word. Uh, for instance, in John 3, 
Jesus says to Nicodemus that as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the serpent in the wilderness is a type pointing to Christ. So what do we mean by a type? Well, it's become a technical term in theology. And there's some variation, uh, whether people want to use it more expansively or less expansively. But it's a forward-pointing symbol, is the simple definition. So the serpent in the wilderness is a symbol, it's more than a symbol, but it's at least a symbol of God's power to heal, right? And the people looked at that bronze serpent on the pole. Yeah. And they were healed of the poisonous snake bites. So it's a symbol of something about God and his redemption. But, of course, it's not the ultimate reality. The real and climactic redemption is in Jesus Christ. And it so happens that that particular symbol has more depth to it, more structure to it, because the serpent is associated with Satan and with evil. And there's also a passage in the Mosaic material that says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, the serpent is on a pole. It's a tree-like thing. So it's saying, you look on this cursed thing and you'll be healed. But you see Christ bore the curse. And, and that's what he's, uh, among other things, that's what he's talking about in the New Testament. So the, that serpent, and not only the serpent, but the, the, the function of the serpent is a type. It's a symbol and it's pointing forward. Now, Adam is also a symbol that's pointing forward because he was head of the human race. And so he's pointing to the reality that Christ will be head of the new humanity, the renewed human race. And now there's an extra wrinkle to that because if Adam had never fallen into sin, there wouldn't have been that. But Adam would still, because he's made in the image of God, he still would have pointed to the second person of the Trinity, who is called the image and invisible God in Colossians 1.15. Well, we could go into uh, things like that. Uh, but uh, the point is that there are actually a large number of symbols in the Old Testament. This, the Old Testament teaches the people of Israel about redemption. But how does it do it? Often by very concrete pictures. So the people go out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea. Well, the symbolism is that of going down into death mm. because normally you die, you drown in the water. Going down into death and coming up on the other side. And Pharaoh, of course, Pharaoh tries to follow and, and his army is swallowed up, so they do die. But the Israelites escape and it shows God's power over the waters of death. Mm. So it's a symbol that's teaching them about redemption. But of course, it isn't the ultimate redemption because they get into the wilderness and they still have hard hearts, most of them. So the redemption is a symbol of, of that deeper redemption that delivers us from slavery to sin. They were slaves uh, to Pharaoh. 
All right, they were had physical slaves, but that is not the worst slavery of all. The worst slavery of all is being a slave to sin and death. And that's what Christ delivered us from. So you you work with something like that and you say that is a pointer to the New Testament. Well, some of these instances, there's actually a New Testament discussion of it. First hmm. uh, Corinthians 5 says, our Passover has begun, the sacrifice is offered Christ himself. That's pointing back to the Passover, which was connected with the Exodus. But sometimes you have to work a little more. But maybe you'd like to pursue a, you know, a different angle. But the point is, there are lots and lots of these. We could go on for the entire time. Just talking <laughs> yeah. about one instance after another. Hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like it, it gives us a good, and we'll talk about this more later. It gives us a, a way of reading the Old Testament in a way that's profitable for Christians and points us to the one who's come for us, not just in the way that's um, just focused Old Testament, um, that the New Testament shows us this points us to Christ. Right. There's only one way of salvation through Christ, through faith in Christ. Yeah. That's true even in the Old Testament. Now, some yeah. people don't realize that, but it has to be hmm. because he's the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. He says that himself in John 14, 6. Yeah. So it has to be the case that, that people were saved through Christ. But how were they? Because Christ hadn't come. Well, hmm. God gave them pictures, right? So the animal sacrifice, that's again another obvious one. The animal sacrifice is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. It isn't adequate in itself. No animal can really substitute for human guilt and sin. But it's a pointer, right? And people could have faith and see that God was promising redemption. Mm -hmm. They could have faith in the Christ who was to come without, you know, their intellectually being able to work everything out. Mm -hmm. There was much that was mysterious. But he gave them pictures of redemption. Now, that's all the way through. Every time somebody is saved in the Old Testament, that's the way he's saved, mm. right? So, so that's why the thing is, you read the whole Old Testament, it's all speaking to you about Christ. Mm. And it's all relevant. And I know, you know, people frequently read the Old Testament, they get bogged down, they say, what has this got to do with me, <laughs> right? Yeah. But if they genuinely could get on board of what God is doing, then they would see hmm. that time after time, there's many redemptions, small-scale redemptions, and they're small-scale symbols, and there are analogies as well, right? Hmm. Uh, all of the instances of the work of the people of God uh, in the Old Testament are analogous to the people of God in the New Testament, although it's different because now Christ has come. I like that you mentioned it that way because it clarifies that people in the Old Testament were saved by Christ through their faith and hope in him, even though they haven't, even though Christ hadn't had his first coming yet. That's right. And, and they were saved by their faith and hope in him by symbols. And you mentioned symbols a few times, and I want the audience to understand when they hear that, we're not talking about um, imaginary, metaphorical stories made up, but these are real events that happened that are also symbols, correct? 
Right, a, a symbol, I should have defined that, so thanks. A <laughs> symbol is a concrete reality, typical, typically something physical, hmm. like the bronze serpent. It's a hmm. concrete reality that points to, that symbolizes a spiritual truth, something about God and his ways. And so the bronze serpent is that, the animal sacrifices are that. And the animals were real animals, right? So, mm -hmm. so you're right to emphasize the fact that there's real people back there. Abraham is a real person. Noah is a real person. There's a real flood. But that flood is basically a destruction. It's a judgment and deliverance. And it's actually taken up in 1 Peter 3 as a model or type for the final judgment and for our being saved and baptism signifying our salvation. Hmm. So actually the New Testament, it doesn't use the word type very often. And sometimes the word type actually means something more like an example. It doesn't have all the load that, that uh, it does later in theology. But there are many, many instances in the New Testament where it picks up on details in the Old Testament and shows how they point to Christ and subordinately to his church. And then even beyond that, I think there are places that are not mentioned at all in the, in the New Testament, but there's still, there are instances of redemption. And so they're still connected if you understand the purposes of God. God has one purpose from beginning to end of salvation, one way of salvation through Christ. So there's gonna be a vast commonality that is sometimes overlooked. And my wife teaches uh, women, um, just Bible teaching, but she's experienced over and over again women, women telling her, nobody ever told me this. Hmm. <laughs> because she tells them about, in effect, the unity of the yeah. plan of God, the unity of, of the unfolding of God's way of salvation. Yeah, I think that's new to a lot of our audience who found us and are learning this stuff for the first time. Hmm. Yeah, that Jesus is the only way, that means everything in the Bible points to him. Yes. Wow, cool. Um, how is typology incorrectly employed? Well... <clears throat> Good question. <laughs> because we've had some excesses, although they're different kinds. Because one kind, the better kind, is where you take something in the Old Testament and you link it, but it's a kind of artificial and cooked up way you link it to Christ. But at least you're still proclaiming Christ. <laughs> that, and that's the main thing, yeah. right? So I don't want to be too hard on those people. If they end up preaching Christ, then, then that's the main thing. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, the tabernacle structure. Now, the tabernacle is a tent structure. And it's, it, it's plain in the original context that it is, its purpose is to be a symbol of God's dwelling with his people. God says right there in the passages in Exodus. So we know right away that it's a symbol. And we know right away because God's dwelling with them is 
is a, is a, with barriers. They, God is holy and they cannot approach his holiness except with a lot of extra means. So you, you know that it's pointing forward to a fuller communion with God that is to come. When Jesus comes into the world, he identifies himself, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up. He's the final tabernacle, the final temple, right? So that's, that, that a whole structure is a type, the tabernacle is a whole. And people are on the right track then when they use it to point to Christ. But then in terms of the details, they say, well, the, the framework is made of wood. And the cross of Jesus is made of wood. Mm. And therefore, that framework is pointing to the cross. Well, they're right about both ends, but not about the reasoning in <laughs> between, right? The cross was wooden cross. The tabernacle is made of wood. What's the matter with that? Because that's not the function of the, tab the tabernacle wood at the time. Hmm. If they'd chosen the pole on which the cursed serpent was hung, then they would be on target. To do typology right, you have to pay attention to what it means when God first delivered it, right? So the tabernacle is a dwelling with, of God with his people. He tells them that. It's, it's, it's really clear. And so we're on safe ground when we say, well, the final dwelling of God with his people is in Christ. Mm. Right? That's the correct reasoning. And with the serpent, it's the same thing because it's the curse. It's a representation of the curse by which you're saved. Hmm. You're delivered from the snake bites. So that's physical salvation, right? But that's a, a symbol of ultimate salvation. Hmm. But now what about the tabernacle framework? That isn't a cursed thing. You see, it's not like the cross. It's function. What's its function? Well, it's to hold up the tabernacle, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the people were dwelling in tents. So they're yeah. looking at that thing and they're saying, I have to be holy. And God tells them, you have to be holy because I'm holy, right? So they're given a system that is a type and an anticipation of the fact we in the New Testament have to be holy because Christ is holy. Yeah. So, you know, things begin to fit together and you notice things that you might not have noticed if you did say, well, the wood is wood, right? And so, you know, you do all these things that are artificial, no, slow down, yeah. right? look at what it's doing in context, and then say, what's the fulfillment? Well, the fulfillment of the tabernacle is in Christ. We've said, mm. right, his body, he says, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. That's in John 2. And he says he spoke of the temple of his body. Mm. Well, what's holding his body together? It's all the structure of his body, including his bones, right? So there is something. <laughs> <laughs> there is something that is a fulfillment, I think, of that structure. But it's, you know, uh, to get there, I have to ask, what does it do? What is it doing? What is God having it doing in when it's first introduced, right? Hmm. And then it won't be arbitrary. Hmm. The second kind of bad typology is when it's not only arbitrary, Right, it's just a leap, right, from wood to wood. But when the leap goes in the direction of heresy, 
because if you're arbitrary, you can go anywhere you want. <laughs> and that's part of the problem. So one of the things I say is, one of the limits of typology is, you must not derive new doctrine, hmm. unheard of things. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's a very serious matter, right? Yeah. Because there are people who will give you strange new doctrines and there's an appeal to it. There's a sinful appeal because you're, you become an insider, you become a secret possessor and you feel yourself superior to all the other slob Christians who don't know what you know. Hmm. Well, of course, it's all a delusion, right? <laughs> because the reality is Christ, right? And anything that supersedes that, that's part of what the problem is, right? That all these newfangled things, if they're not in the New Testament, they draw you away from Christ in the end, or hmm. they draw you to a false Christ. I mean, there are people who are saying, I'm the reincarnation of Jesus. Yeah. They've actually said that. They're lying, right? They, they may be deluded or they may be outright liars. And so it's completely false, but we've got to be aware of the fact that people can use the scripture in a manipulative way like that. Uh, fortunately, I think most of the people who are doing typology today are doing it understanding look, the limits are the limits of, of biblical mm -hmm. teaching, overt teaching, right? And the reason why the Old Testament ought not to be used that way is because the climax is in Christ, and the climax is fuller than the anticipations. So if you're getting more stuff out of the anticipations, you know you're on the right track, wrong mm. track, sorry. <laughs> uh, so I think that's the primary thing, uh, don't do new doctrines. Don't do even new predictions by, on, based on typology. Because, because typology is largely controlled by what we have been taught openly in the New Testament. We've seen the fulfillment. Hmm. And so we are in a position, because God has revealed it to us in the New Testament, we're in a position to trace how those earlier things lead to the fulfillment. But that's why, uh, and the second thing is what have we've already been through, of you do what Edmund Clowney taught me to do in his book, Preaching of Biblical Theology. Do typology in two steps instead of one. Don't do a leap, that's one step, right? The wood of the tabernacle to the, the wood of the cross. Mm -hmm. Don't do it one step. Do it two steps. The first step, what is God saying to them back then? Hmm. And the second step, how is that fulfilled in Christ? And sometimes hmm. also in his people. And sometimes also in the second coming, right? Which is still Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was incredibly helpful. Yeah, I'm, I'm, those, I'm, I'm hoping our audience, if you guys want to kind of rewind back onto that and, and re-listen to it and write some of that stuff down or help you in your own Bible study, I think that's really helpful for how we can interpret the Old Testament in light of Christ. This next question, I'm personally particularly interested in your response because it's actually my personal favorite chapter in the Bible, um, Luke 24. 
Uh, so how does Luke 24 verses 25 through 27 speak to our interpretation of the Old Testament? Right, Luke 24, I'm glad you brought it up. It's a remarkable passage that pushes us strongly, I believe, to do, to see Christ prefigured and uh, depicted in the Old Testament. So verse uh, uh, 25 says, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So the primary focus of the, of the uh, uh, prophets is the suffering and glory of Christ. That is suffering, right? Crucifixion, sure. death, and glory, resurrection, and ascension, and being seated at the right hand of the Father. In verse 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's pretty comprehensive, but actually somewhat later in the same chapter, it's even more comprehensive in verses 44 and following. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms hmm. must be fulfilled. Those are the three major divisions of the Old Testament known that the Jews customarily thought of the Old Testament as consisting of the law, the first five books, the prophets, in which they included what is, they called the former prophets, the historical books from Joshua to Second Kings, because they saw them as prophetically written. And then what we know is the prophets of Isaiah to, to Malachi, the Lam uh, uh, Daniel, they classified with the third division, the writings, and the primary book was the Psalms. So, but the point is, he's got the names of all three groups, although the writings uh, would be under the Psalms. And then he says, so it's, so it's the comprehensive of the Old Testament, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So this is saying, this is the key thing that the whole Old Testament is about, the scriptures, and said to them, thus it is written, and now he's summarizing what's the thing you've got to understand. Thus, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, it's the same thing of suffering as in glory, right? And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And there was a remarkable amount of material in the Old Testament that is talking about how God's work of salvation is eventually going to spread to other nations, right? It starts with the line of uh, Abel and Seth and Noah and Abraham and so on. But eventually it's going to spread to the nations, which is, of course, what we see happening in the New Testament. So, but the main thing is that Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament is about me. And now let me get, show you two particular ways in which that's true. One is the area of mediators. 1 Timothy 2, I think it's verse 5, says there's only one mediator between God and man. Christ is himself man, who sacrificed himself. Right? It's his sacrifice that's overcome the alienation, delivered us from guilt, delivered us from the power of sin. Wonderful things. But there's only one. Right? Mm -hmm. But actually, there are mediatorial figures in the Old Testament. How do you account for that? 
well, they're all types of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that they could function the way they function. Who's a mediator? Abraham is a mediator because he receives prophecies about himself and his descendants. Moses is a major mediator. He's a prophet because he receives words from God. He's like a king. He, he rules over the people. He's like a priest. In fact, he offers sacrifice in order to consecrate the people, uh, the, uh, Aaron and his sons, who will be priests uh, from generation to generation. So you go through the whole Old Testament and you look, there are lots of these figures, the prophets, the kings, the priests, even the wise men. You can go on and on. That's one key element. All of those function as they do only because they are types of Christ. So that's, that's one example of that time thing. Another example is the stories of deliverance. There are essentially many redemptive stories. Frequently, it's physical deliverance or it's deliverance in war, right? Or it's deliverance from sickness. But sickness is a symbol of sin. So you, you go on in this way and you see, oh, you know, I'm beginning to see this pattern of pointing to Christ and his redemption is just all over the place in the Old Testament. It's not just here and there, a verse here. There are some direct prophecies, some direct predictions, right? And those start very early, Genesis 3.15. The, the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So they have a promise of a coming redeemer. But the point is, in addition to those direct promises, there are massive amounts of material in the Old Testament that are depicting the work of Christ in some aspect or other, but always short of the actual work. They're never... They're never the same level because only Christ actually accomplishes the redemption hmm. from the spiritual slavery to sin and death. Hmm. Love it. So one last question here to wrap up. What resources would you point to someone who's new to type, typological approach to the Old Testament and wants to learn more about this stuff? Yes, well, there are some good books. Uh, one is uh, Edmund P. Clowney, Preaching in Biblical Theology. He actually has a section there. And yeah. People can just read that section if they want. It's yeah. about page 110. Uh, and there's another one that's more, uh, even more, it's more elementary called, this is by the same author, Edmund P. Clowney called The Unfolding Mystery. Now, I have a couple of books myself. I'm a little <laughs> embarrassed to yeah, uh, go for it. promote my own books. No, but, go for uh, it. Uh, there's an early one called The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses. And the title pretty much tells you what it's about. So it's looking at the mosaic material. And then there's another book called Reading the Word of God in the Presence of God hmm. that is essentially telling you how to, how to read the Bible, it's hermeneutics, with, with a few examples. Uh, but there's a section there on typology. Hmm. Yeah, I read the, um, the Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses myself, and that one helped me. I read the Clowney books, and the, what was it? The, there's that square one. I think that's the one that you're talking about where he goes, 
up and then to the right and then down and then back to the left and the context and then what it points to Christ and give it to your people. So I remember that, that diagram. Okay. Yeah. Good. And there's a, another one called the miracles of Jesus and the subtitle, uh, I don't have it before me, but the subtitle is about how our savior's mighty acts are signs of redemption. Hmm. So actually, I think typology can apply even not only to the Old Testament, but to the miracles of Jesus. Hmm. It's pointing forward to the great act of redemption in his crucifixion and resurrection. Hmm. So this physical healings, for example, healings from blindness, right? Well, that's pointing to the healing from spiritual blindness, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. Or the bodily healing of a leper, where leprosy is a sign of sin in the Old Testament. So that bodily healing is looking forward to the resurrection from the dead, hmm. which is based on his resurrection, bodily resurrection, but also to the cleansing from sin, because the leper is then made clean, and he is uh, then qualified to approach the presence of God in the temple. So it's all it's symbolic, of course, but it's pointing to the work of Christ. So that may be a help to people, because it's uh, it's looking primarily at the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John and the miracles there, showing over and over again how they are types of the climactic work of Christ in, in his death and resurrection. Mm, yeah. So we'll, we'll link those in the show notes for, for those who want to look into this and, and read and, and learn how to read Christ in the Old Testament and, like you said, in the parables. I think that'd be really helpful. Oh, I thought of another book called Theophany. Mm. Well, theophany is an appearance of God, visible appearance of God in the Old Testament. Well, the final theophany is Christ. So there you got it again. <laughs> Perfect. Like yeah, thank you. That was really helpful. Yeah, thank you so much, Doctor. Um, God bless you, and thank you for that. That was very deep and edifying, and I think people really get a lot from that this episode well, yeah praise the Lord. yeah thank you dr poithers for coming on we're really thankful we hope that those who listen uh, learn more and, and hear the gospel as well well good good and my apologies for missing that earlier appointment uh, <laughs> it's all good but but yeah we've, we've done it so yeah thank you that. very much this is really helpful thank you for making the time for us sure Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate and review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge 
is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy as again we bridge the gap to reform christian <laughs> theology exactly the yeah and you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this or three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further yep all for the kingdom of god thanks so much guys we'll see you guys next time